Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. Before we play you this unbelievably fun interview we had with Nick Davis, the author of Competing with Idiots, a dual portrait of Herman and Joe Mekowitz, we just want to pause and say thank you for listening. We, this really means a lot to us. Keep following us on Twitter at 15MANFILM and let us know what to watch. You can be in contact with us on Twitter. You can give us a request there. You can subscribe wherever you get podcasts, but we just want to say thank you. Yeah, I can't believe that you guys are really still allowing us to have a show. So we're we're very grateful. And we want to do movies that are a little bit outside of our wheelhouse. Like, you know what kinds of movies we like. Our list is interminable. It goes on forever. But it's always a, a joy when we get uh, one of your requests and then we and then we discover new movies that we enjoy. That That's really why we're doing it. So thank you so very much. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So we are here on 15 Minute Film Fanatics, and we are thrilled, absolutely thrilled for this very special episode. That sounds cheesy, but it is a very special episode. We are here with Nick Davis. Nick Davis is the head of Nick Davis Productions in New York City. He's also the grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, who, of course, co-wrote Citizen Kane. And he's the great nephew of Joe Mankiewicz, who began his career as a producer, most notably of The Philadelphia Story, and then moved on to direct a number of terrific films, um, including one famous disaster, Cleopatra, but also one bona fide masterpiece, which is all about Eve. Nick wrote a book called Competing with Idiots, a dual portrait of Herman and Joe Mankiewicz. It was published in 2021. I came across this book. I was at the public library going through the new books, and I saw the title. The title made me laugh out loud. Okay, Herman and Joe might be kind of interesting, right? So I put that on the stack. Had no idea we'd be talking today at all. I started reading it. And as I got further into it, Mike, you can pick up the story here. What did I start doing as soon as I started going through the book? Um, Very cryptically texting me. He said, there's a book I'm reading. There's one good line per page. You're going to love this, but I I don't want to spoil it. And I don't want to tell you what it is until you're ready to read it. And so finally, I got kind of a gap in my schedule where I was ready for a new book. And he said, okay, it's competing with idiots. Don't break my heart. Just go buy this book and read it. Uh, and I and I had to agree with him. Uh, there's so many things that I like about this book, um, ranging. I have some interesting things I want to ask you about the style and also the way that it made me see Joe by the end. But I was so glad that I picked it up. Yeah, it was it was I was kind of almost, um, you know, harassing Mike. Um, did you get the book yet? Did you get the book yet? What part you on? Did you get to the part? With it? And so it was, you know, it was but it was a, a texting labor of love. So we're so thrilled to have you here. So let, let's dive in. I want to set this book up for the, for the people who may not have read it yet, but hopefully they will very soon. So well, first, can I just say thank sure, you? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it, it's great to be here. And what a terrific story. Oh, my God. That, that made my day. Oh, great. Well, you're making ours. So, 
So the, the book is set up with your adult reflection of these two guys, right? Like, so, you know, you, you set this up that you grew up knowing that Herman was this larger than life figure. He was like Falstaff with his appetites and his wit. He wrote the greatest movie of all time. And you kind of had this impression that his younger brother, Joe was a square, like he wasn't as smart. You, you, you actually use the phrase, you gave him one begrudging exception that he made all about Eve, but he also made Cleopatra, which is a bigger bomb than the bonfire, the vanities or heaven's gate or something. So what's funny, I think, is that when we open the book, we're kind of with you. When I was in the library and I saw the book, I said, oh, of course, you know, Her- Herman's the genius. And I knew about Raising Cain and Pauline Kale and all the controversies and things. And Joe was like this workmanlike director who rolled up his sleeves. He wrote one really great movie. Everybody loves All About Eve. But that's really all I knew. But a curious thing happens when you read the book is that our opinions of these guys, I think, grow more complicated. And the book's narrative starts in 1988, where Joe was getting this award from the French consulate. And you meet him and you're almost kind of taken aback that he says um, he was, quote, emanating nothing but gentleness and humanity. And it almost kind of like throws you for a bit. And then the book starts becoming you, the story of you looking behind the images of of these two guys. And what's great is that the book makes us constantly reevaluate our opinions of them, which is, of course, a great like Citizen Kane idea. I mean, that is a, that is a Kane idea. Like, you know, who is this man? What is his name? And so in one scene, you know, Herman's really funny. And another one, he's like a, a kind of a, a drunk. And in one scene, like, you know, Joe is this kid brother trying to make good in his, his big brother's uh, you know shadow. And then in another scene, he's asking his son, can you pay for the upkeep of your mother's grave? Like your opinions of these guys keep going up and down. Um, and then at the very end, and I'm almost at my question, you quote Joe as saying, I don't think anybody exists as one pure note of music or one color. People are fragmented, like another great big Kane idea, right? So can you talk about that idea of like, like how this, how your opinions of these guys grew as you, as you decided to do this book and what led you to do it and what you learned as you went through it? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge question. That is sort of the question of the book is, you know, who I grew up, as you say, with these very cartoon-like images of these two men, you know, um, formed in early childhood and then kind of frozen there because my own mother, Herman's daughter, died when I was only nine. So I had no way of finding out more about them other than to go to bookstores and, you know, look in the back of books and look up their names in the index and sort of see Gee, Joe gets a lot more pages in this book. I mean, Joe was constantly getting more pages in the various Hollywood history books that I was looking at because Herman was famous essentially for, you know, being a drunk, being really funny and Citizen Kane. And that's that's kind of it. And Joe had a really terrific, long, steady career. I mean, decades long success in Hollywood. And um, and so but but when I was a kid, it was like. Herman was a genius, you know, and and he drank himself into an early grave, sure, but he was loving and wonderful. And my mom loved him and, and told me how great he was. And Joe, we never saw. And I got the feeling that Joe was sort of a bit of a jerk and he'd made the, the biggest disaster in Hollywood history, Cleopatra. And so I sort of thought, well, I guess he was just like ashamed. I mean, there, I guess there's just shame emanating from this man. And then, you know, you get to be a young adult and you realize, well, wait a minute, they're honoring him at the French consulate. My dad says, do you want to come along? I mean, it's your uncle Joe, your great uncle Joe. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. And I realized wait a minute, he's obviously was hugely successful. And then I meet him in the flesh and he's wonderful. And he reminds me of my uncle and, and he's clearly like my flesh and blood and seemed lovely to me and, and just soft and human and, and all that. And so that really was the inciting incident that made me want to investigate these two guys. Um, 
And, and, you know, and Joe's right. Like no one is all simple and all one color, all one thing. And I wanted to get at the heart of who these two guys were in, in my view, you know, it, it's, this is not, um, you know, thank you for pointing out that the subtitle of the book is Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait. It's not a dual biography. It's a dual portrait. I do try and tell their life stories, their complete life stories, but it's absolutely coming from me. You know, and if I get things wrong, I did the best I could. Sorry. You know, uh, and I've said this to <laughs> only partly joking, said it to some of my relatives. Hey, write your own damn book. Like, you don't like my version of these guys. You do your own book. You know, no one's stopping you. Um, so, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, the family has all been incredibly supportive and we're trying to break the generation's long history of competition and be supportive of each other, which is, which is really nice. Um, but anyway, yeah, to answer your question, I, I wanted to figure out who they really were. Yeah. I came to the book and knew of course, who Herman was. Honestly, I hadn't really heard of Joe. I'd watched, I'd seen all about Eve and I knew that somebody, obviously somebody had directed Cleopatra, but I, I didn't actually know off the top of my head uh, that it was Joe. Right. And so coming into the book, what I really expected was the same thing that that Dan is talking about, which is this brash history of Herman Mankiewicz being funny and being kind of like the Hollywood Samuel Johnson, you know, walk, who walks around kind of spouts off at parties and goes from, right. from place to place. And what I found was um, I did find a really complicated portrait of Joe. I, I texted Dan this morning that this book made me appreciate the work and respect a man that I'd never met and whose work I, I wasn't familiar with. So that I thought that that was is really interesting. And my favorite part of the book is you dramatize Joe starting to understand what it means to be a director uh, in his late 40s and early 50s as he directs kind of five five pictures in a row. And that's where I think Dan's qualifying that as like the workmanlike quality of Joe understanding making motion pictures. You, you dramatize him bringing in kind of a fog expert to try to understand where to use the fog in one movie. I, f I forget exactly which which movie it is or where, where to place right, the camera. Right, 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 right. Where but to you place also... the camera. Yeah, it, like Joe really did learn and, and Joe took it seriously. You know, I mean, I think the real difference was Herman never took, and frankly, he didn't really take anything seriously, um, but he, he certainly didn't take movie making seriously. And he went out to Hollywood kind of on a lark just to make money. And then he got kind of trapped there because the money was so good and he liked the mm -hmm. weather. But he felt like, well, real work is being done somewhere else. And the first wave of Hollywood screenwriters, that was kind of what they all felt. And then the next wave was like, no, 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 this is a great living. It's a great way to, to and this is an art form that we can master and, and do well at. And, and Joe was part of that second wave of Hollywood screenwriters who took it seriously. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, they eclipsed you know, the, the first wave of screenwriters who were just like, you know, drinking and carousing and, and, you know, doing this while in their minds, you know, making plans to write the great American novel. Well, I'll complicate that though. Cause so one thing that really occurred that struck me though, is you make it clear that from the first, even while he's learning where to place the camera, he has a, he has an innate ability, which is to get the performances that he wants out of people or, or essentially to corral actors in some way. And it strikes me that the only film where you can really point to that, that it's an, it's an abject failure as a film uh, is it, it maybe his failure to get Elizabeth Taylor to, to do what he wants on Cleopatra. He writes her that funny note that says, um, you know, we've, we've all begun at nine. Sorry, we missed you. Love Joe, uh, which, right. you know, which made me laugh. 
so I'm, I'm just curious, how much of his success would you attribute to that workmanlike quality or his seriousness versus his innate ability to get people to do what he wanted? Well, I think it is. I, I, I mean, I think the the innate ability, I think, just meant that that talking to actors and more you know, important uh, actresses, I think came really easily to him. Um, so I think he mastered that part of the craft really, really early in part because of his own personal life and, you know, being younger brother to such a titanic figure of, of rage and fury. I think he felt like, okay, but I know how to, I know I'm, I'm going to hide and I'm going to sort of manipulate people to do what I want. And, you know, early on, I, I talk about Joe doing that performance for his mother. Yeah. And, in, and it's like he's he's going at her, trying to get the laugh, trying to get her to respond the way he wants her to. Um, but he's he's learning how to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, manipulate has gotten a, a bad rap as a word. Like, it's not not a bad thing to be able to do if you're a director. So um, so I think he he got that, but I think it was part of his workmanlike, okay, I'm studying what to do in order to get what I need. And what I need is a great movie. Yeah, you have the great part in that series that Mike was talking about where he where I think it's the director of photography says to him, don't, don't, someone tell, someone says, don't um ask, don't say you don't know where to put the camera. If they say, does this look good? Just nod and say, yes, that looks very good. That looks very good. Don't say you're not sure where to do it. Right, right. No, I mean, when you're, you know, famously, when you're directing a movie, all you need to be doing is making decisions. So if someone comes up to you and says, you know, you want the red shirt or the blue shirt, the important thing, even if you have no idea, is to just make it a red decision. shirt, red, red shirt. shirt. Oh, absolutely. 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 Right. Yeah. It's funny what you just said also about to, to lead into the next question about how, you know, the, the first wave versus the second wave of screenwriters is that like, you know, the, you know, the second wave is no, this is a legitimate art form and we can tell stories this way. There was still that kernel though in Joe that thought theater was more legit. And that comes out in all about Eve, right? Like he never got to write his play and he really never got to make after Cleopatra, he couldn't make his four movie, tr- you know, you know, tetralogy and things like that. So it's kind of funny, like that seems like that was gnawing in him as well, that I should be doing something more legitimate, so to speak. Well, certainly having the father that these two guys had, Franz, <laughs> them both with the feeling that nothing they did was going to be good enough, nothing could ever <laughs> measure up. And, you know, they both sort of felt like, you know, this is, you know, Hollywood stupid and let's get out of here. And Joe was able to get out. Um, you know, he, he was, he was actually younger than you, than, uh, you said, Mike, like he was, he was in his late thirties and early forties when he was learning to direct. And then he, but it was, it was the forties. Um, and, and then he finally made the break after all about Eve, after the incredible success of all about Eve, which followed on the success of letter to three wives. Um, he, he moved to New York He moved back East in 1950. And that was it for him. And, but he maintained a very successful Hollywood career uh, for the next two decades, although certainly a significant drop off in, in clout after mm-hmm. Cleopatra, which, you know, I go into and both wasn't at all, all his fault and isn't nearly as bad as its reputation. No, absolutely. You feel bad. You, 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 your, your heart bleeds for him and that when he's getting the vitamin B one shots and he's trying to, you know, he, you say he didn't sleep for more than three hours mm-hmm. over like 18 months or, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy what the pressure he was under. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And he, you know, I think he did an incredible job after the circum under the circumstances. And, and then, Afterwards, his career was very much in decline, um, but or eclipse, and and until Sleuth, 
and you know, it's not like Sleuth is, um, you know, the greatest movie ever, but it's pretty entertaining. I and, love Sleuth. And, yeah, I mean, I like it. It's 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 actually hard to find. It's not available. There's some weird rights issue, um, so it can be hard to find. But but it's a, it's a good movie. But after that, uh, he he didn't direct again for the last twenty years of his life. Um, and I think he had sort of come to a kind of peace with that because he felt like, well, Sleuth is a good one to go out on. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is. Well, let, let's talk about like, you know, uh, like a good one, the idea about you, you, you know, you're bringing up this issue about reputations, right. And as the, as the arc of their lives and of their, their, you know, their, their reputations, so to speak, intersect, we see Herman and Joe move from these moments of like incredible fame to ones where it's almost like the industry has passed them by, especially for Joe in the second half, he starts Figaro productions and he keeps trying to like have these new artistic endeavors. Um, there's a great bit where Joe is making sleuth and he goes to his son, his son, Tom is producing a James Bond movie. And he sees like the seven sound stages. And, and he says like, you know, what, what do you do on all of these? You know, how, what, do, what do you guys do all day? So what I'd like to ask is, is like, to what degree is your book and the lives of these two men, like, like a case study in like the vagaries of fame and of talent and, and what, what fame is like in Hollywood or anywhere. Yeah, I think that's I think that that's really true. I mean, it's interesting you say, you know, the industry had passed Joe by because I mean, really it had passed Herman by. And in the, yeah. in the 40s, the, the, you know, Herman's career went on this sort of graceful downward arc after getting out to Hollywood. You know, for a time there was this burst of success and, and uh, you know, he was the toast of the town and he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood and all that. And then his life and the way he lived his life, eventually he's, you know, fired from basically every studio. And there's this graceful downward arc that is briefly interrupted by Citizen Kane and, and then Pride of the Yankees uh, the next year. But but really in the 40s, he was, he, he was not having a good time of it at all. And I think that 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 you know Joe was worried about that. And then kind of the same thing happened to him after Cleopatra, where it's like, I don't get this anymore. I don't understand what you guys are doing. And I never really respected any of this. I mean, Herman really never respected it, but but you know, this stuff is crap. I'm like, what are you doing with this blown up Yafet Kodo, <laughs> you know, this huge yeah. inflatable right. Yafet Kodo doll bobbing up near the uh, top of the soundstage. So um, I think it is about that it's about success and it's about how do you define success? And and in their world, the way you define success is by, you know, competing with the idiots that surround you, beating them. And and that's the way you'll get to be happy and, and successful. Um, and it drives you crazy because it's founded on nothing but you know, sort of success and and not any kind of deeper values. I mean, there, there there were deeper values of education and learning and stuff. But if you weren't educated, then you were an idiot, and there was no way there was no hope for you. So you had to be educated, you know. Um, but it, it, I don't know. It's a it's I, a, 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 it's a, a theme on the book is how that sort of relentless competition will destroy you. Um, if you are not careful. Well, there's that moment where Joe says to your mother, I thought you'd be a star. I thought you'd be a star. And your mother says, well, I kind of feel like I am. Her exact quote is, I have two children and a happy marriage and I'm writing a novel. But she says that that's not what he meant. 
Right, right. Yeah, no, that was, it was actually wasn't it wasn't Joe. It was Joe's one of Joe's sons, Tom. Oh, sorry. That's right, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Right. Because I don't think Joe. Well, maybe he would have said it to her. But anyway, they'd become estranged by that yeah. point. And, and my mom wasn't sure why. And 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 Tom said, yeah, you've kind of disappointed her. And, and my mother was, a, you know, a reasonably successful woman in her early 30s. And she was the first woman on the masthead at Time magazine and had this you know, successful husband and a couple of kids. And it's like, it was like, what, you know, and uh, by the way, she was also huge. This is not in the book, but she was a very entertaining person herself and was sort of the life of every room she walked into. So it was, a, it was an odd and sort of, yeah, I mean, it was both mean and hurtful, but also um, sort of off and, and sort of, well, yeah, right. You're not, she's not a star on the cover of Time magazine, but she she she's doing pretty well. Um, so I wanted to ask a question about the book itself. Uh, one of the things Dan said to me is, "You're going to really enjoy the style." And you know, he and I we read a lot of what I would call straight up academic literature or academic breakdowns, which of course are notorious for dragging things out uh, or or over. Right. contextualizing or overcomplicating things that should be relatively simple. And so I think what Dan meant or the way that I interpreted it was that this has a, a very easy style to enjoy. It has a very drinkable style, but without uh, without the, the over complexities of some of the stuff that we're used to. And one of the things that struck me is that especially some of the particular word choice in the good line seems they seem snappy in a way that channels both Joe and Herman's best telegrams, letters, uh, and I, I was wondering if that's something that's that's incidental or just part of your idiom, or if it's something that you were specifically channeling, because it, it seems it seems like a lot of the book is narrated over lunch. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, well, that's wonderful to hear. No, I I mean, I was very mindful of I didn't want the book to be boring. And for many years, it was boring. And it was being written in a very dry, boring voice uh, because I was trying to be objective. And it was it was terrible. And I was putting myself to sleep and I thought, why does anybody need this book from me? Like, this is the most, you know, I felt like I'd been assigned this thing. And I mean, look, I don't know that we have time for this or I don't want to turn this into a therapy session. Look, I never wanted to write. I never wanted to write at all. And I certainly never wanted to write this book. And I kind of tricked myself into doing it um, because I'd started a documentary about these two guys. I didn't even start it. I just had an idea and I went to American Masters in 2002. And I said, hey, I got an idea for a documentary about these two guys and here's the interesting thing about them. And, you know, and, and they gave me a little bit of money to start doing some research. And I did some research and did a bunch of interviews on sound only with a lot of my relatives and, and, and a few of Joe's remaining friends. And then was at a party that Christmas and ran into a friend who's a book agent. I told him what I was working on. He said, oh, let's do a book. Let's do a companion book. And I thought, yeah, great companion book. That'll write itself. I don't need to worry about it. Anyway, long story short, I sell the contract. I have a book contract in April of 2003. And the documentary never happens because clips are so hard to license. It's so expensive that American Masters just we could never come up with the money. So then I'm tasked with this 
book that I can't walk away from. And I never wanted to write because I frankly never wanted to compete with them. I, I mean, this is the man who allegedly, in my mind, wrote the greatest movie of all time. And, and this other guy wrote, you know, one Oscar for best screenplays two years in a row, not to mention the directing thing. And um, so there were all kinds of things that made me not want to write. Um, but I did finally, after, I don't know, 10 years kind of, of, of writing a boring book and, and not writing it, um, I finally realized, wait a minute, I know what I need to do. I, I, I'll write it about three guys. I'll write it about Herman and Joe and me, my favorite subject. So then I wrote this book about, and I interwove their two lives and my life. And I gave it to my editor and finished the book and gave it to her. And she said, well, this is what you needed to do in order to write it. Now take yourself out of it. And like, I mean, she didn't, she was very kind about it. She didn't say nobody cares about the Nick Davis story, but, um, and after some kicking and screaming one afternoon, I did, I just removed 150 pages of Nick Davis material and read it through. And I realized, okay, the book now has a voice. It has my voice. So it's not a biography. It's a portrait. It's coming from this very specific place. I wasn't finished with the book. I still had, you know, a lot more years of, of writing to do. But in terms of the style, it's my voice. And, and I'm, I'm pleased that my voice, you know, it's, it, is, it contains some wit. It's as if we're over lunch. That's, those are all, I think, good things. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that the book is, is, you know, that people enjoy the voice because that's all I got. I certainly did. Yeah, we certainly did. Because at one point, one of my, one of my 625 texts to Mike about the book was, I remember Mike, I said, this guy can write. Mm -hmm. Long oh. before we knew we took it, I said, this guy can write. And uh, that was, you know, so I, I love what you just said. I, and I love how you keep going back to the idea that it's a portrait. So you make me think of like, you know, I'll put you in good company here. You know, James Joyce, a portrait of the artist as a young man, that it's not a, it's not a photograph, it's a portrait. And, I, you know, the old stories that, you know, every portrait is also a portrait of the artist. And certainly, you know, you know, this isn't this is not a dual biography. It's it's Nick Davis's impressions of these two guys as having been in that in that circle as, you know, having been one of them. And that's a, that's a good segue to my next question is that, you know, part of what makes it so terrific is that it's authored by a Like you, you're one of them. Right. And you're you're like just far enough removed that you're not trying to like defend the whole family, you know, the, the family crest or anything, but you're also kind of an insider, like, you know, and it's, it's kind of fun in the book when we, we, we get the first person and you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like he's not like, you, you kind of like forget like that he grew up hearing this stuff. Um, so I say that because one theme of the book, and you alluded to this earlier, is the competition in the family. And that's something like hardwired into the, like the story about the three points, which I'd love you to tell our listeners, right? So, you know, to what degree, you know, were you conscious of that? Like you'd mentioned the family before, and you said the family was kind of supportive of the book, but what did anybody say, wow, well, you know, Nick is really going to write this, or he's really going to do this kind of thing? Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody actually believed I was going to write it. Be, and I didn't, including I you? didn't blame them, <laughs> including me. Like, yeah, for years, it'd be like, are you really doing that? And I was like, yes, I know. And it was just an albatross of like, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And, and I really, up until the moment when I had the false breakthrough of realizing, uh, oh, it's about me too, you know, that was the only thing that could unlock it was my own narcissism. Now, I do think that I, I tried not to, to overplay my hand. I don't, I hope it's not overdone. No, it's not. Much about, about me. And I'm, I'm, I like that you forget that it's by me, me yeah. you know, a, a Mankiewicz, that, that for vast stretches, I don't use the first person. 
Um, you know, and then my mother enters the story as a character and then, then I'll say mom, you know, and then mom does this and that's kind of fun for me. But um, the, the, the competition was so uh, dramatic and, and I think the competition must be part of why I didn't want to write it, you know, because I didn't want to compete with these guys. But, you know, the, the, the famous story and, and they both got it was you bring home a 97 on a test and Franz Mankiewicz, the imperious German born professor who was their father would say, what happened to the other three points? Where are the other three points? And it wasn't funny, you know? I mean, there's a few people I've told the story to and they say, oh yeah, I got that too. And it's like, yeah, I know. And I kind of got it too, but it, but it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, what happened to the three points? It was like, where are the other three points? What happened? You know, what happened to you so that, so that you are not perfect? You must be perfect. You must do your best. You are gifted, you are talented. And if, you, if you're not perfect, then you're not doing your best. And that that will destroy people. And and I think that Joe and Herman both suffered greatly for growing up feeling like, well, they had to be perfect. And, you know, at a certain point, Herman sort of realized, well, I, I'm not even going to try. I'm, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to I'll be larger than life and everything I say will be funny. But, I, you know, trying to turn that into literature is going to be too hard. And um, I'd rather just live my life as this sort of legendary figure that people can talk about. And so the improvisational life is the life for me. And, and people will talk about me. And lo and behold, the years after I'm gone, they'll still be talking about me. And, and maybe they'll even make a movie about me. You know, that's the kind of life I want to lead. And, and for a long time, frankly, that's what I thought I wanted to do. I was like, well, yeah, I'll just live a life and have people talk about me. And, you know, that doesn't get you very far at all. Can you talk to us about the title? It's perfect. Can you tell us how you came up with that? Well, so, yeah. It, the, when Herman first got out to Hollywood, uh, he was, you know, lured out there in 1926 by a publicist who said, you know, here's a contract to go do a picture about Marines and you'll get paid $500 and it'll take you about five minutes. And Herman went out there and almost instantly sent back a telegram to his friend, Ben Hecht, that said, uh, you know, will you accept 300 per week to work for Paramount Pictures? The 300 is peanuts. There's millions to be grabbed out here. And your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. And at this at the time, it was silent movies. And, and it was really easy from Herman's point of view uh, to, to write these things. And, and that just struck me. Um, well before I even sold the book, I mean, I, I pitched the book as competing with it. So like that this is the this is a fantastic title um, because it's he also uh, famously used to refer to his brother as an idiot, and he would say, "Can you believe my idiot brother? He's directing a picture for Fox. Look at my idiot brother. He's winning in back to back Oscars two years in a row. You know, and and like you just think of everybody as an idiot if you're Herman Mankiewicz." Not everybody, but nearly everybody, and and you're competing with them. And since the those two ideas, competition and thinking that you're better than other people, are sort of at the heart of the story of both of these guys, uh, it just seemed like a, a fun title. Um, and I also I like the um, yeah I just I just really like the title. Always gave me a, a smile. Yeah, me maybe less. D- Dan, you've recently been watching. I think the last time we spoke, you were at like. Four, five or six of Joe's films. Um, you know, I'm wondering, Nick, 
of especially of the other work besides All About Eve. Do you have any of Joe's films that you think are worth a, a rewatch? I know you said Cleopatra is not as bad as everybody says, um, but it, 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 sure. did anything get overlooked in there? Yeah, I mean, we haven't mentioned Suddenly Last Summer, which is a fascinating movie. And and I think A Letter to Three Wives, which did win for Best Picture the year before All About Eve, uh, is is really worthwhile and fun and funny and smart. And you can see the germ of, of All About, All Eve, about yeah. Eve in it, you know. <clears throat> it's really fun. And and Kirk Douglas is great. And uh, and so is Paul Douglas. And then, you know, um, oh, Linda Darnell. It's, it's really good. It, I... I I think A Letter to Three Wives is probably my second favorite Joe movie. Also, Five Fingers is really interesting. This weird sort of Hitchcockian thing he did with James Mason. Right. Uh, it doesn't quite work, but it's it's the the, the feeling is really good. Um, a lot of them are really good. I've, I've had the same thing. I recently saw People Will Talk with Cary Grant, and that's a fascinating film just to watch and think about. Okay, what was going on in everyone's mind he, when he they described like, the movie to me? And I said, and I thought he was pranking me. I said, yeah. that's not, that's not a movie. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 it is. Um, I can prove it to you. But, and, <laughs> but it took me at least 10 minutes to accept that that's, that, that, that wasn't a joke, especially because we love Cary Grant, but yeah, I don't right. know how that movie could have gotten buried. Cause I've seen like well, hundred Cary Grant movies. Because he's so unlikable and he's just, he's, he's just being a pompous ass, yeah. like, you know, 98% of the time. And and that was a that was a thing in the fifties for Joe. Like a lot of his male characters were just such jackasses, um, and uh, you know whatever. We I just went to a screening of All About Eve here uh, in Upper Manhattan, and it was great old theater, and it was fantastic. Post COVID, we were all gathered, and and I'd never watched it with people before, and the reactions to the 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 two male figures who aren't Addison Dewitt. You know, um, you know, Bill, Bill Sampson and uh, uh, Lloyd Richards, you know, they're just so dull, these guys <laughs> um, and um, they're just pompous dullards. Um, but the, but the reactions were really hilarious in the crowd. Yeah. Even his speech about the theater. That's that's theater. And Donald Duck is theater. And, and, and yeah. even yeah. in a movie well, no, like I that, love that speech, but it's, yeah. it's first of all, he's not a great actor. And, and you know, like if Kirk Douglas had played that role. Um, right which you know he sort of did in a letter to three wives it would have been would have been even a better speech but um but no it's it's yeah it's fun great well thank you so much for speaking to us about this book we we urge it upon all of our listeners competing with idiots herman and joe manko it's a dual portrait by nick davis you can get it anywhere we heartily recommend it mike you don't have to know you don't really have to enjoy film to like this book. And right. that's what I, that's what I like about it. Now, if you do, if you love all about Eve or you love citizen Kane, or even if you've just heard of citizen Kane, you're going to enjoy it. But that's, that's not the draw here. Um, I think that this is, this, this is a really interesting meditation on, uh, on fame and then, and kind of the hero's journey of how to learn to make art. Thank you guys. It was really fun to be here. Our Thank partner. you, Dick.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.